Welcome to Executives in Wealth Management podcast. I'm your host, Tom Spencer, Director at Cygnus Search and Selection, executive search firm across the UK wealth management space. In this podcast, we'll provide our listeners with exclusive insights for the most successful leaders, disruptors, entrepreneurs and relationship managers in the market. Our guests will share their stories and experiences on topics such as leading a business, managing home and life, influencing skills, all with a view to help you gain valuable tools that you can apply into your own professional life. In episode six of the Executive Team Wealth Management podcast, we're pleased to have been joined by Eddie Reynolds, Chief Executive Officer of Close Brothers Asset Management. Throughout this conversation, we discuss how Eddie's approached his own career, what strong communication looks like, and the importance of setting a North Star. Hi, Eddie. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for coming in to see me. No, thank you. Um, so I guess the, the purpose of, of what we're trying to do with the, the podcast, Eddie, is to, is to break down the, the barrier of the title, the facade, if you like, of a senior leader within the wealth management space and particularly within a, a chief executive officer and to try and understand Eddie on a, on a more human level and then move the conversation to the, the lessons and experiences that you've developed in your career, which may be beneficial to aspirational wealth management professionals. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. Um, normally, we start the conversation by understanding the I guess, experiences of, of you in, a, as a, in your formative years to understand what made Eddie Today, Eddie, I guess. Okay, yeah, we can do that. So if we can, can we talk about your life um, pre, pre-work? You know, how were you brought up? What values were instilled in you as a, as a young person, etc.? So I grew up in Scotland outside Edinburgh. Um, my parents were, I was say borderline hippies. They probably were hippies. <laughs> um, I... Nothing particularly unusual. We we, we lived um, very fairly rural. Um, all of our holidays for the first almost twenty years of my life were also in Scotland, um, over on the west coast. So I've always been outside, climbing hills on the water, getting lost, um, disappearing for hours on end um, at a time when no one seemed to worry about that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so I guess w- one thing that probably gave me was. Uh, well, a few things, um, some, some environmental awareness. I've always been um, very comfortable and very happy being outside, value the outside. Mm. Um, probably quite a degree of independence. Um, I do wonder with my own children whether the sort of helicopter parenting that we're almost, um, I, I don't know what it is, obliged to do or just for some reason now naturally inclined to do, do we give them the same freedoms we, we used to have? Um, yeah, there, there, nothing particularly unusual or particularly special. There was six of us. I got um, a brother and two sisters, and uh, we always had a dog. It's fairly standard stuff, I think. I don't think many people would would choose to describe their their parents as borderline hippies. Was that the word that you used? Yeah. Um, I mean, they, 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 I mean, they, they, at one one point when before this. My parents were first together before they were before I was born. Um, they were uh, thinking about immigrating to Canada. They saved up a bit of money. They were going to go over and start a new life over there, and instead decided now we'll just hitchhike across Europe and ended up going from the UK right through Europe into the Middle East and Iran and um, 
uh, I don't know how many months or whatever that took, living, sleeping on beaches in Greece on the way and that sort of stuff. Um, when I was wee, my mum used to make a lot of our clothes and there were always some very flower power type patches on the, on the, on the jeans and so on. So I think um, we probably stood out a little bit compared to other people. We had, we had the, um, the obligatory BW camper van or several of them. Um, a, but at the same time, we lived in a semi-detached house on a new built housing estate and went to the local school and so on. So it wasn't, okay. um, it, it wasn't sort of hardcore hippie-ish, <laughs> but it was sort of, yeah, borderline hippie-ish. Okay. And those experiences that you had as a, you know, an out, uh, a young person outside a lot, um, is that transferred into your, your adult life? Is that how you unwind and do, you know, and deal with the, the pressure of being a, a senior leader in wealth management? Is it into the hills and? It, oh. it, yeah, it, it certainly used to be. So, um, uh, uh, up until sort of 10 or 15 years ago, um, all my spare time would be, mountain biking, hill walking, if it was winter, it'd be skiing and snowboarding and um, all that stuff. I was always trying out something new or doing something. Um, and then I guess a couple of things happened. Uh, I had uh, a mountain biking accident. Um, I used to break my neck, um, wow. which took me out of action for a, a wee while. Um, and then I, uh, sometime after that, I also met my now wife, who um, uh, is, is quite likes the outdoors, but perhaps not quite as much. And... Uh, we also have young kids now, so the 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 sort of ability to do that sort of stuff has been pretty well curtailed, in, at least uh, for the time being. Um, so yeah, not quite sure what I do to unwind now. Um, probably probably my main time to unwind is the train journey between Edinburgh and London, um, which I do every week. Okay, okay. Um, breaking your neck sounds like a big deal. You know, is it as bad as it sounds? No, no. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's um. It does sound very dramatic. Uh, it was, uh, without wanting to get into too much detail, it was a, mm. it's described as a non-displaced stable fracture. Okay. So although the bone broke, or maybe bones actually, um, nothing moved and nothing was going to move. So, uh, I mean, it was pretty painful and quite a mm. lot of um, painkillers for a few weeks. But it was apart from that, it was just a neck brace and uh, reduced mobility and movement for a while. Um, but I also reset the bar in terms of what was acceptable to take time off at work because i um, uh, it happened on the Sunday. I was discharged on the Monday. Um, got back home Monday night. Took Tuesday off work and was so bored. One day at home, I went back into work on the Wednesday. <laughs> so two days off work with a broken neck. No one at work forgave me for that because they felt they could never take any time off. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. Okay, all right. So um, y your childhood very much outdoors. Big family. Um, lots of travelling, largely within Scotland, etc. Just to kind of move the conversation forward, if you had to describe the, the sort of key values that were instilled into you at a at a young age in those formative years, you know, what would you say they were, Eddie? Um, well, d directly picking up on something I just mentioned, I guess there's an, an environmental awareness yeah. there. So I'm not a, a sort of top thumping green, but I but I do think I'm quite environmentally aware. Of, It's odd to say this now, but I believed in climate change while it was still doubted by many. It just seemed entirely obvious that it was true. Um, uh, and I've always been sort of mindful about what I do because of that. So since I'd started work in London, um, a bit over a year ago now, I've, I've worked here before, but last time I was working here, I lived here as well, but I now live in Edinburgh. 
work in London. I've, every time I've travelled to the office here um, for more than a year now, I've got the train down and back. Mm. Um, not just because of the environmental impact, but also actually because to me it's a far more sensible thing to do. I can get four and a half hours of uninterrupted thinking time um, and deep thinking time is um, a rare commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that incredibly useful to do that. I, I sometimes joke with people, if you need to get some work done, just take a four-hour train ride somewhere. Uh, you can't be interrupted. Um, and as long as you can get a relatively um, sort of secluded seat, you don't have to worry about people looking over your shoulders. Um, so so there's that. Um, I think a, set, a sense of fairness, um, which I observe this with my children. I, I think children seem to have a sort of inbuilt sense of fairness or at least a sense of unfairness in terms of that's not fair um but that but that's that's stuck with me and um uh, so the sort of social angles to that in terms of what what's fair and what's the right thing to do um and then perhaps the last thing i might say is that this sense that we should try to leave things better than we find them um, which i guess is partly another environmental thing um but just generally i mean in terms of um at work um make things better for the next people that are going to be at that, at that, um, in, that in that environment or um, or even at home if you're going to buy a house and then move on sort of <laughs> hand it on in a better shape to the next person we've always lived in period homes and uh, yeah. um, they, they are in some sense a sort of a, a liability and a commitment but uh, yeah don't if you're going to do some repairs do proper repairs um, don't don't shortchange the next person and, and leave lots of nasty traps for them uh, yeah that, that idea that we should leave things better than we leave things better for the for the people that come after us generally uh, would be another strong one I think in my mind yeah um, and I think there's a lot to that and I think we could quite easily jump from there to your time um, as a uh, as a senior leader in wealth management but we'll, we'll, we'll step back for a moment so what I'm interested in is is that period between I guess when your education began to end at University of, of Manchester and uh, I don't know whether there was a period in your life where there was a question of of what next, but from what I can see, what next was was Aegon, I believe. Is that right? Uh, Aegon, uh, at the time, it was Scottish Equitable. Okay. Um, yeah, that was my first drill out of university. Uh, there's, there's, there's never been a plan, though. Um, whenever I've been in one of those interviews with a with one of your bosses about, so what's your plan? I could I could look forward to sort of twelve to twenty four months, but I wouldn't ever have a plan even five years ahead. So I'm not like um, was it William Hague who stood up in the uh, Tory party conference way back when and at 16 basically told the world he was going to be prime minister um so I've, I've never had that sort of the vision about what i wanted to do for my entire career um it's always been about what's the next right thing to do i think i just quoted um frozen from disney there didn't i <laughs> um yeah what's the, what's the next right thing a I, I, through school and university I, I was just good at maths and it always was obvious i'd study more maths and eventually a degree in maths um, I had no particular idea what work would interest me or what I'd be good at, but a friend of mine, his father, was a, a fund manager, and that seemed quite interesting exciting. Mm. He had a, a nice car, seemed to go off to Japan quite regularly on work trips. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah. Um, uh, so I applied for fund management jobs um, and uh, got one, as I said, with what was Scottish Equitable now, Aegon Asset Management, mm. um, and just sort of kept moving forward and, did things that I found interesting um, uh, from from there, and eventually it's led to here. Okay, and if we kind of look at, I guess from there, yeah, your role within Aegon Asset Management ultimately led to being the business development director. 
then across to SWIP or uh, Scottish Widow in Investment uh, Partnership. Partnership, that's right. That's right. Um, through to Lloyd's as uh, head of investment, and then many roles culminating in the managing director of the platform business with, with Standard Life Aberdeen. Yeah. So if we take those as a as a collective, uh, you know, a couple of decades perhaps of, of your career. You know, what I'm interested in is the concept of, of leading a business or leadership, or as in leading people. How, what would you say were your um, key learnings through that period of, of, of leadership in general? What did you learn through that time? Um, so maybe a couple of thoughts there. So, so one would be... Um, Initially, I think for most people, the, the the path into sort of leadership will be as a in a in a, t in a technical leadership role. So you'll have a specialty, whether it's finance or HR or fund management or whatever, um, and you're probably going to progress within that function or that technical specialty to become a leader there. Um, in in my mind, though, if 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 you have any ambition to go further, or actually in my case, it was just interest about other things. Um, the sideways moves, to my mind, are very important. Um, partly, if you're only ever going to progress up through one functional line and try to get to the top, it's always dead man's shoes or dead woman's shoes, and uh, um, it's a very narrow path, and um, unless you're going to keep jumping employer, uh, it could be a long time waiting. Whereas there's, there's quite often or always going to be some interesting sideways moves available. And, and broadening out your understanding of your business, your understanding of different... Um, functions within within it I think it's an incredibly useful thing to do um, so that, that's what I did I, I started off as an investment analyst and um, fund manager a but at a point in time we were looking to spin out the investment team of what was a small Scottish life company into a separate asset management business so we were standing up a whole lot of new functions um, business development marketing finance all these things um, I was asked to get involved in some of that stuff, and I thought that's quite interesting. Rather mm. than spend my time analysing other companies, I'd be quite interested to get involved in running and building um, a company. Um, so that sort of that, that interest about doing other things and stretching yourself sideways, I think, is is, is really useful um, in terms of giving you a broader perspective. Um, a, a second thought would be at, at some point, I think everyone goes through effectively. Um, I guess you might call it a transition from being, well, if, if, you, if you're progressing further um, onward, that is, um, from being a technical or a specialist leader into a sort of general leader. Um, and that, to me, is a really key transition, which um, not everyone makes successfully. Agreed. Um, and it, it's, it's partly on um, employers to recognise when they're asking people to go through that transition to give them the right support. Um, but it's also about the individuals recognizing they're going through that transition. So, so for me, I, 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 don't, I don't know why I thought about it this way, um, but I thought it was a very good way to think about it. But I, I'd suddenly been um, given a much broader role beyond just um, investments. Um, and I needed to recruit the successor from my previous role to take over. And I thought if I don't put someone in that role who I think is at least as good as me, I'm going to find it very easy to want to step back in there and do their job, do my old job rather than do my new job. Mm. I need to have somebody in there who, firstly, I think could do it better than me and probably is also strong enough to tell me to... Um, Leave me alone. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> um, uh, which, which I did do. Um, and it forced me then to think about my broader set of responsibilities and what, what, I was, what I was doing there and how I was doing that. 
Um, and I was lucky at that time that my, my employer uh, was very thoughtful about that stuff and put things in place to help you go through that. But that, that transition is an absolute key one. So recognizing when it's happening, um, thinking about how you're going to do it. And if, if you're not being offered it, asking for the right support to help you do that. Because if you make that transition, that's probably the single most important transition, I think, from going um, uh, through the different levels up to... Um, uh, to lead a company overall. If you can make that transition, there's no reason why you can't carry on going further. No, I, I completely agree. And we spend a lot of time talking to, I guess, individuals and organizations around transitions in life and in leadership roles. And that support is is fundamental to, to success as, as a senior leader that's transitioning away from, as you said, a, you know, a vertical to a general manager. Um, most organizations don't do it well. I think that's a fair observation. Um, I'm just interested on that point. If you were in a, if you weren't fortunate enough to be in an environment where the business recognised that there was a development program which needed to be put in place, what could you have done, or what did you do outside of of work or outside of your employer to to help that development program? Did you did you reach out to your own network? Or I, I didn't. Like I said, I was fortunate to have an employer at the time who was thoughtful about yeah. that stuff and gave a lot of support. Um, if, if that's not the case, but you're going through that transition and you recognize it, then perhaps one of the key things would be to do is find a, a good mentor. Exactly. So somebody who has done it already themselves, has experienced that, and you can talk to them about it. Um, a and, and, and actually, as a general point, having mentors outside of your organization is, is, a, is a really useful thing anyway just in terms of giving you a perspective on what you're thinking about and so on. Um, particularly, and um, interesting thought here, I don't know to what extent do most chief executives sort of fulfill that um, stereotype of being the sort of slightly narcissistic sociopaths mm -hmm. um, to, the, to the extent that they do, perhaps they wouldn't have this um, self-doubt. But, but if you do um, have a, d a degree of self-doubt or the, the imposter syndrome, um, uh, it's almost certainly undeserved. Um, having someone you can bounce your thoughts off and say, no, you're thinking about that exactly rightly, have the confidence to go with what you're thinking about is, is, is really useful. I agree. And I think, think self-doubt is, is a strong word. I mean, any role requires, a, any different role requires a slightly different skill set, even if it is within the same vertical. What made you successful Previously, it's not going to necessarily make you successful again. So I think I think you know self awareness is is critical in any you know high performing senior leader. I I, I absolutely think so. And if if I saw somebody coming up through the ranks who who didn't have any self awareness or any self doubt and was just riding through yeah. based purely on confidence, I, I'd worry. Um, <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> those those are the Agreed. people you probably want to try and weed out. Agreed. So I think this is a really nice point to. We talked about the, the journey from um, or through your career. Um, what seems to me like you proactively, and most people don't do this, but proactively look to put yourself in environments which developed your skill set and your 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 experiences. Whether that be, as you say, by not being so um, driven that you wouldn't consider a sideways step. It had to be a step up because your pride wouldn't allow you to, to step across. I think that's, that's really, really valuable. And then that transition from leading a, 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 a vertical 
as I'll call it, to leading a business in general is a kind of nice point to talk about, well, this is the, I think it's fair to say, your first chief executive officer role with in your career and, and also with Close Brothers. And we've talked a little bit about transitions and, and periods in your life and your career, which um, you need to be aware of. And we talk about this a lot as as a search firm with, with both clients and candidates. So I'm really interested in that point when you land as a CEO, day one. And I think that without getting a bit theoretical about it, there are, in our minds, there are good ways that a business and, and a individual can go about the process of onboarding, particularly at a CEO level. Your, the expectations are, are very, very high and first impressions matter, but there's a natural lack of awareness and information about how the business works, how businesses make decisions and the culture of an organization that because you've not worked there before, you naturally have to go through a process to, to find out. But I don't think many people get the opportunity to ask a CEO what's it like to, to step into, into that role day one. So I'm keen to kind of explore that. So just for the sake of this question, I'm going to define culture of an organization as the expected behaviors and actions that happen within an organization, how decisions are made, how change is communicated, how the, the, the environment expects stuff to be done, basically. And so when you came into the organization on day one, I'm interested to understand how you went about that process to understand the culture of Close Brothers Asset Management what did you do? How did you start that process, Eddie? Um, so in, in some senses, this might not be massively helpful because it was possibly a, a unique set of circumstances and a, and a unique way of doing it. So firstly, um, I was doing this on the back of um, COVID. Uh, I was actually, I'd, I'd left my previous role um, deliberately to take some time out. Uh, my, my wife had been at home for six odd years um, with, with the kids, they were now um, in nursery school stroke last year of um, last year of nursery school in, in primary school, um, and my wife was looking to restart her career. And I thought, well, I mean, I've been doing this for thirty odd years now. I quite fancy um, a few months out. That would suit me. Um, it feels a good time to move on from my last job. Um, so we agreed that I would uh, take that time out. My wife would find a job. She could um, get her legs feet back under the table um, and I could initially um, do that looking after the kids at home and all, all that sort of stuff um, so she didn't have to worry about that um, given she'd been doing it before so that, that so we thought that would be a really easy simple, sensible and um, good transition unfortunately sort of two months after I went into the garden um, we were all sent home because of COVID and uh, uh, I, as the one at home I was then doing all the homeschooling and everything else so I um six months uh, with the kids followed by a six-month job search, be back at work within the year, ended up being more than two years. Um, and, when, and when I came back to looking for a job, um, so I was, I was in the garden, so I was available straight away, um, went through the whole quite extended interview process, um, meeting various group executives, um, uh, non-executives, the chairman here, um, and that was a useful process in itself. Um, that, that was very informative about the culture of the overall group, um, which is very positive. It's a, it is a very attractive culture here generally. 
Um, uh, one of the reasons why I was more than happy, indeed very keen to join. Um, and then once I'd been offered and accepted the role, uh, one of the things that's slightly unusual about Close Brothers as a group is um, out of um, respect for the regulators, we don't announce senior roles until regulatory approval is, is granted. Um, many, many companies will announce a, a higher subject to FCA or PRA approval. Um, we don't do that. It's all strictly confidential and hush-hush until the, the nod comes through the regulator, which, which meant I was sitting on the offer, um, but no one was, was aware about it, and I was at home sort of just wanting to start work. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we eventually agreed, given I was available, I could come onto the payroll, um, hide out in, a, in one of the um, sort of client rooms in the, in the client suite, um, and because I'm now on payroll, get access to all the information and so on. So I had a couple of months before the approval finally came through where I had full access to um, financials and minutes and papers and presentations and research reports and all sorts of things, um, which allowed me to do a lot more, I guess you could call it in a sense due diligence, but also really start to understand um, some of the company and also then start to meet um, uh, uh, my immediate senior team and get to know them a bit, bit, bit better. So I had a sort of very gentle lead-in to to the business, which um, perhaps not not everyone is um, afforded. But um, as a way of doing it, I could quite recommend it, having, having that time to think about things before you arrive. Um, but then the, the bit that is probably universal and would carry across is um, I, I'm naturally a reflective person. It, it can sometimes... Um, wind up my team when they bring things to me and I listen to what they're saying and I go, right, leave that with me. Uh, they want a, they want an answer or they want or they want their answer, um, but I, I'll, I'll take things away and think about it. So I, I spent a lot of time listening to the team, um, trying to understand the business and the culture of the business, which, which then naturally led into the first thing I was always going to do, which is a review of the strategy and um, understand what we were trying to do and did I agree with it and, and so on. Um, so, so in summary, I think probably that, that key point is, is, is to listen and to reflect and to absorb um, before you start making decisions. There's always, there's always an expectation, new chief exec, what they're going to do, what they're going to do differently. Exactly. Um, and, and you will want to do something and make some kind of a mark Agreed. in the first few months, but mm. you don't have to do it in the first few weeks. Yes. Um, no, no one, I don't think, really expects you to come in the door and immediately reorganize the business or point it in a new direction or something. Um, it would be quite odd if you did that based on... 24 hours of uh, um, deep knowledge of the business. Yeah, I agree. And um, style can be very important as well. I think many businesses, you may have a, or many senior leaders that step into a uh, senior role, it's as important to do it in the Close Brothers way. I can make that influence and make that change as is, as is uh, the importance of what you're actually doing. Um, but if I can move the, the point on, I think there's a real nuance to understanding that you are leading a private client business. Fundamentally, Close Brothers Asset Management is, is a private client business, yep. in, my, in my belief. Yeah, yep, definitely. And I think that without going so far, if you look, well, recent history suggests that other senior leaders in this space perhaps forgot that at times. And the consequences very quickly can be very significant, enough said, I think. But I'm interested to get your view on how do you strategically think about driving growth within a private client business when that 
individual relationship between, as we say, a relationship manager and the client is, is pivotal. And uh, I'm just interested in that. Well, to me, that's actually the, the core of the strategy, and I'm, I'm very explicit about that. Um, so some of my competitors have decided for different reasons, and I'm not always convinced that the reasons they give and the true reasons are the same, um, but, but they want to um, create a stronger relationship in their mind between the business or the brand and the end client. Um, uh, and, and, if, and effectively, although it's maybe not quite worded this way, but effectively weaken the relationship between the, um, the, the investment manager or the advisor and, and the end client um, for perceived risk management or commercial reasons or whatever it might be. Agreed. Um, my, my view actually is, is the opposite, which is that relationship is the key relationship. Um, if, if you have somebody who's been looking after a client for years, possibly a couple of decades, meets them regularly, that relationship is far more important than the relationship between the, the client and the business. Um, so, so rather than fight against that, work with it, respect it, build on it. Um, so our, our strategy, um, uh, if, we, if we look at the, um, the mission part of it, so our mission, if I can get the words right from my, from my memory, is to create the best place in the UK for wealth professionals um, to bring their clients. Um, so it's, it's about... It's as much about those colleagues as it is the end client. All, all companies rightly talk about how the, the importance of clients and the right client experience. Um, what I'm very clear on is I put the experience of the colleagues that look after those clients right up there on uh, an equal basis. Um, and, and indeed, the two things are hard to separate. Um, the, the client experience will be enhanced if that colleague is empowered to deliver the service and um, so on that they want to give to that client and that client expects and equally making the client experience really good en enhances that colleague experience because th those two things are so intertwined. Mm -hmm. um, so being very clear that um, what we're trying to do here is make this the best place for you if you're a private client investment manager or if you're a, a financial advisor, if you've got a, a book of clients and you want somewhere to be able to look after those clients that respects you and respects that relationship, um, we want this to be the best place to do that. Mm. Easier said than done, isn't it? But I think the, the, the concept of being, I'm not saying you're quite this far, but you know, an employee-led culture, you know, where the fundamental uh, priority of the business is to have happy employees, and to say it in kind of simple terms, and, and thus the expectation that happy employees provide a good, a good service, go, go um, above and beyond, um, is, 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 is pivotal to that. So, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, if we can kind of talk about strategy then, I think, it's, I think that it's an easy word to throw around, isn't it, strategy? It's kind of, it's kind of exciting, but, but most people aren't strategic thinkers in reality. You know, most people are not very good at chess. You, know, you can think one yeah. move ahead, but can you think five? No, I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I can. Um, and if you look at the uh, language which you put out, I mean, it's on your LinkedIn profile as an example, you talk about North Star, and I guess it kind of feeds into the, the point that we've just talked about, your North Star is that you know, 
enhancing that relationship between relationship manager and client. So that's the North Star. But I'm interested in, as the most senior leader in this business, how do you actually communicate that strategy? It's easy to say it, but it's harder to, to really communicate it across all levels of the business. That's right, and you say it's easy to say it, and yet lots of companies don't. Um, and, and to me, that was the key thing when, when I joined the business here and I, and I did my strategy review. The, the strategy was there, and the strategy was the right strategy, but it was buried amongst some other stuff. It wasn't particularly well articulated, and it certainly wasn't very well understood. Mm. Um, so, so our strategy is um, we're a wealth manager. We want to grow as a wealth manager. We will grow by bringing in more experienced um, private client investment managers or financial advisors. Um, that's the strategy. Now, the, the way we execute that is to either hire what we call bespoke investment managers. Um, we call them bespoke because we are genuinely bespoke and it's one of the ways we're differentiated. Um, and we um, buy financial planning businesses. So. Um, but those are the tactics, effectively, to deliver the strategy. Exactly. Quite, quite often, tactics and strategy get, get mixed up. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and then, in terms of why, why would a company, why would the owners of a financial advice business want to sell with us? Why would um, financial, uh, sorry, bespoke investment managers want to come and work um, uh, with us or um, work here? Um, you, you think about what they want um, and deliver on that. Um, and a big part of that, particularly in the bespoke investment management space, is that end-client relationship, uh, the ability to deliver a bespoke service, um, respecting that relationship, supporting people in terms of delivering that. Um, so we've been very clear that's what we're trying to do. Um, and similarly, on the financial planning side, um, looking for very high-quality, culturally-aligned businesses um, where um, the sellers are very... Um, cognizant of the culture of the company they're selling to and it being aligned to what matters to them. Um, the, the owners of these businesses are very thoughtful about um, who's going to be looking after my clients in the future, who's going to be um, looking after my uh, my employees in the future, am I doing the right things by them? It's it's often not purely about the, um, uh, the, the, the biggest check on the table when these, when these companies are being transacted. Um, so a very clear focus that that's what we're doing. And um, what I wanted to achieve in the communication of that strategy was um, this is the strategy for the business. These are the tactics we're deploying to do it. And everyone's role sh um, should be aligned to do that. So um, I guess two things. Firstly, if your role obviously is aligned to that, then you know you're doing what the company wants you to do. And that's a good place to be. Not Employees are not always quite sure if they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, but equally, if, if you're doing other stuff, then then stop, because that's not the strategy. Mm. Um, so real clarity on what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it, um, which we've described as, as the North Star, um, ensures that everyone can align behind the same mission, the same goals, the same objectives. Um, and certainly, it, to me, the, the efficiency gain you can have by having everyone pull in exactly the same direction rather than generally working in the same direction but not quite. Um, that, that just instantly introduces huge amounts of um, tension and treacle and so on as people debate, are we doing this quite the right way and so on, and um, weeks and months can get wasted and things don't move forward. Um, uh, whereas the absolute clarity of what you're trying to achieve, if that's in place, suddenly you can move forward at pace. 
Yeah. Okay. And so the key point there being clarity and direction towards. Yeah, absolutely. A, people talk about the importance of strategy. I'll probably get this slightly wrong, but there's an, a, there's an, an analogy, isn't there, that if you set sail from North America and aim for, for Britain, if you are two or three degrees out in the, you know, the vector that you're directing, then you'll end up on the wrong continent. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's interesting. But I mean, that, that's exactly the point. So giving genuine... Um, and, and the other thing about it, if you're also really, really clear about what you're trying to achieve... Um, and assuming you have good people, which we do here, then you don't have to bother micromanaging. Um, people will get on and do the right things. People want to do a great job when they come to work, um, almost universally. Um, so have good people in the right roles, um, give really, really clear directions of what you want to do. Um, and the, and the, the and ship sets sails it. and they, they land exactly where they're hoping to land. Yeah, not on the wrong continent. Indeed. Okay, so... If we kind of move the, the, the conversation to a, a point of reflection, I always kind of t let our, our guests take from this what they want. Uh, you can either reflect back from where we are today or, or think forward about aspirationally what you'd like to see across the, the wealth management space or on a personal level. But I'm interested in your overriding feeling or, or key learning, perhaps. So there's a couple of questions in here, really, but... What, what are your key learnings today in your career that you think, if you knew two decades ago, would have really helped to enhance your position or performance in the role that you're doing or even the direction of your career? Um, I think I'd probably just reiterate a couple of points I've made. So, so one is um, the, the value of that breadth of experience, I think, is huge. So... Um, and, 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 and you don't have to do it sort of deliberately. I, I need to go and do something else. Do, do something else because it's interesting. I mean, that, that's what always drove me. I, I never did these things because I thought this is the route to a bigger job or ultimately a chief exec role. Um, I made these choices because I was interested in doing something different, being challenged in a different way. Um, the, the upside of doing that is if it doesn't lead to a bigger paycheck or a bigger role, you're still doing something interesting. Yeah. Um, so um, what, what's, what's to lose? Um, and, and then the, the other thing to me is um, this idea that people are generally really good they'll, 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 and they can do really, really good things. You don't have to um, overly manage or overly direct. Uh, that, that point about giving the, the right direction, the clarity of what you're trying to achieve. Um, people do amazing things. Um, I, don't, I don't think for a second I could do the job of any of my team better than any of them can do them. Hmm. Um, uh, they're, they're all brilliant people in their roles. Um, so just line line everyone up, make sure we're really clear what we're trying to achieve, and then they'll do incredible things that you couldn't even anticipate. Yeah, create create an, an environment that allows them to operate at yeah. a high level, performance at a high level. No, really good stuff, Eddie. Um, so we'll kind of move the conversation to... The quick fire round, which is a little bit cheesy, but the purpose is the context of the conversations across guests will, will vary widely depending on who they are, their role, their background, etc. And it's nice to have a um, an anchor, if you like, that's consistent across all guests. So okay. humour me, if you will. <laughs> right. But the purpose of the quick fire round is we ask five questions. We ask the same five questions to all of our guests and you're supposed to just respond with whatever comes naturally to mind. Okay. You up for that? Yep. Okay, so... 
In one word, Eddie, how would your partner describe you? Uh, I'm going to use a hyphen. Obsessively tidy. Hyphenated to make it one word. Okay. Who is your idol? Oh, um, Einstein. Oh, okay. Um, like, based on, I mean, in awe of what the human mind is able to do and, and just... Um, yeah, the, the the problems he solved or the the things he imagined, which are just beyond my ken. Mm. Um, yeah, it's amazing what the what the human mind's capable of. Okay, what are you currently reading? Uh, One hundred years of solitude. Okay, yeah. What's your pet hate? That's oh, the flip of the first one: messiness. <laughs> okay. Okay, and so Signe has got the bill, Eddie. Uh, you can go anywhere in the world for however long you want, a weekend or a month. Where do you go? On holiday. Um, yeah. a, somewhere that the kids will love, um, which is probably no more complex than somewhere that has either beaches or pools and serves chips for breakfast. <laughs> Fascinating. So you, yeah. Possibly not a Ritz-Carlton. Or... <laughs> that works for us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there then, Eddie. Um, Thank you very much. That was a really enjoyable conversation. Thank you.